What's up, everybody? Glad you made it. Excited to have you on board for this episode of the Ebb and Flow podcast. Before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to do something a little different as I get the handles on all of this production process. Uh, so this episode, I've had a lot of people reach out to me over social media asking me to recommend specific books that I think are good reads or important. So this episode of the podcast is dedicated to you guys. I selected two books. In this episode, I'm joined by my brother Gus. He is my current role dog, uh, part of my absolute support team. And uh, he's been a lot of fun to dive into some of these topics with. So Gus picked a book of his own. Um, The two books I chose, I chose Blink by Malcolm Gladwell and Tribe by Sebastian Younger. Um, These two books, I think, are incredibly important because of their mind-expanding content, honestly. Um, These two books, to me, highlight two very key elements of the human experience that when you understand this, um, these processes of, uh, you know, data analysis, as well as the importance of social connection and having a solid community of people that you can rely on and live with and go through this life experience with. Um, these two books are incredible for highlighting these aspects of our of our lives. Um, so Blink, it's incredible. Um, it was a big, a, a very validating book for me in the power of intuition and the subconscious mind. Uh, excited for you to hear about it, and and I obviously highly recommend reading that. Uh, and then Tribe by Sebastian Younger, um, just just an incredible read on the topic of the importance of community and connection for the human human creature and the human spirit. Um, excited for you guys to hear that, Gus chose the book Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by P.K. Dick, which has a number of fascinating topics that it explores through this science fiction lens. Uh, Obviously, this novel was adapted into the film Blade Runner, one of my all-time favorite movies, one of the great sci-fi films of all time. I highly recommend the film, at least. Um, the book is fascinating as well, and is much more intricate than the than the movie, as usually happens. But very, very important themes. Um, the nature of empathy in this human experience. Uh, what does that mean? What does that look like when we've ravaged the planet and extinguished all other 
living creatures, which is part of this book, what happens to our humanity? Um, and as we fly headfirst into a ever more technological state of being, as hypothesized by P.K. Dick in this book, what does that mean? And what does that look like? What could that look like potentially? A lot of great political ideologies explored um, and uh, it's a great one as well. So very mind expanding series of books here. Uh, I think you guys will enjoy all three of them. Uh, before I jump into this episode, I want to throw out there very excited about the first full-fledged ebb and flow podcast sponsor um invader coffee guys i can't recommend this coffee enough if you're a coffee lover invader coffee is some of the best coffee i've ever had i look forward to it every morning uh, when i wake up it is fantastic it's organic it's low acidity it's it smells incredible. It just it gives you that boost that you're looking for. It's veteran owned, owned by a, a a complete badass named Wes Whitlock. I highly recommend you follow him on Instagram if you don't already. He is a wealth of knowledge and badass inspiration. He's got a number of companies, and Invader Coffee is one of them. It's fantastic coffee. Head over to that website, invadercoffee.com, and use the code THEEBBINFLOW, all one word, all lowercase, to get 15% off your next order. So lots of love to you guys. I hope you enjoy this episode, and here you go. You have unlocked the eternal link to internal source, the key of imagination. Your admission. Access to the enlightened dimension. A gateway at the junction of darkness and light. The place at which the chaos of our conditioned frame of mind give way to a life in constant flux. Only to be mastered through vigilant discipline. Peaceful times may come. Testing times may go. This is the ebb and flow. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the ebb and flow podcast. I am your host, Eben Britton. It is excellent to be with you guys again on this very fine day. It is Wednesday. It's another beautiful day to be alive. I hope you guys are hanging tough out there. I know I'm doing everything I can to stay balanced, stay in the moment, stay strong for my loved ones, for my family, for my friends. It is a challenge in these wild times we find ourselves in. So today, once again, on the mic... I've got my brother, the man, the great, the powerful, Augustus Britton. Gus, welcome to the show. Another day in paradise. Amen. How do we know we're not in heaven already? Amen, dude. A fucking men. How do we know? 
Well, I believe as Jesus Christ said, heaven and hell can be found within. Or some such quote. And it's true. I mean, here we are. It's all up to you, y'all. Yeah. It's good to be here, though. It's good. It's beautiful outside. Um, It is. You know, we've got this, uh, this lab set up a little bit this uh recording lab it's the pod lab man it's in we're in the fucking living room of the chandler crib friends of the pod (laughs) (laughs) friends of the pod so today i really wanted to i've been wanting to dive into or at least offer some books that i feel are incredibly important and relevant in this moment we all find ourselves in Mm. Um, books that can help you. Wow. I had a a crazy moment of deja vu just now. Did you? I just shot through the fucking universe back into this moment. What happened? And here I am. I don't know. Looking over there, talking about this podcast, Uh deja vu. I think that means we're in the right place at the right time. That means. Yeah. So, I've been really wanting to offer up some books that I believe can help anyone expand your understanding of yourself and the world around you to help give you better context for where we are right now. And uh, we're going to we're going to have to do a podcast <laughs> about deja vu now. Oh, I know. You can't just know. glance over Jesus them. Christ. <laughs> The deja vu moment. Oh, so here, yeah, we'll definitely have <laughs> so, to do that. Maybe we'll even talk about keep it. Keep that in the back pocket. The purpose of this podcast, unlike the the recent podcast I did, that was all about power versus force, the the great book by Dr. David Hawkins, um, where I really went into detail about the book. In this episode with you, Gus, I really just want to hit some some basic ideas about what each of these books is about and why I think they're important. Mm. So our conversation might very well circle back to deja vu. Okay. You brought a book. Yep. I've got a couple books that yep. I want to mention. Yep. I've got some um, notes too. Okay. Perfect. Notes. So let's launch in dude. Okay. Let's launch in. Here yeah. we go. Five, four, three, two, one. Here we are in outer space of bookdom. All right. So the first book I want to hit, which you might laugh at, and I have to say that although I feel like this book is is really powerful, this guy, I've, I've lost my taste for this guy because of some things I've learned about him. The book is Blink, mm-hmm. The Power of Thinking Without Thinking by Malcolm Gladwell. Okay. I have not read it. It's a fantastic book. I'll tell you my reasons for uh, being skeptical of Malcolm Gladwell and his positioning in the world mm-hmm. uh, in a minute. But the book is really fascinating. It was one of these books that was on my shelf 
a few years ago, and it just kept calling me. I don't know where it came from. I don't think I bought this book for myself. Mm. I don't think my wife bought it. I'm not exactly sure where it came from, but it was literally eyeballing me from my bookshelf in my bedroom. And I said, you know what? I'm going to pick that thing up and read it today. Mm. So I started reading it, and immediately I'm... I mean, Malcolm is a fantastic writer. The gist of this book, and it begins with this story about how the Getty Museum here in Los Angeles, they came upon through somewhat mysterious means, they came upon this beautiful statue. Hmm. And it's a very particular statue uh, that was from a very particular era in Grecian sculpture. Mm-hmm. Um, here, I'll, I'll give you this is the this is the opening, the statue that didn't look right. In September of 1983, an art dealer by the name of Gianfranco Becchina approached the J. Paul Getty Museum in California. He had in his possession, he said, a marble statue dating from the 6th century B.C. It was what is known as a koros, a sculpture of a nude male youth standing with his left leg forward and his arms at his sides. There are only about 200 koroi in existence, and most have been recovered badly damaged or in fragments from grave sites or archaeological digs. But this one was almost perfectly preserved. It stood close to seven feet tall. It had a kind of light-colored glow that set it apart from other ancient works. It was an extraordinary find. Wow. Bikina's asking price was just under $10 million. The Getty moved cautiously. It took the Koros on loan and began a thorough investigation. Was the statue consistent with other known Koroi? The answer appeared to be yes. So, from there, he goes on to say, the Getty brings in all of these sculpture um, masters. Yeah, yeah. Experts. Yeah. Experts. Mm-hmm. To come in and try to uh, legitimize if this was the real thing or not. Right. Right. So, in this example, in this chapter... He goes on to say that literally every single expert that came in, they looked at the statue and they couldn't quite put their finger on it because all of the paperwork, like we've talked about before, the paperwork and sort of the numbers and the data all lined up, but they couldn't put their finger on it. But when they looked at it, something was wrong. Mm. There's one... uh, sculpture expert in there who says the the moment i looked at it i just had a bad taste in my mouth i immediately had a sensation that i was looking at something that was untrue or false or not real Mm. not authentic Mm. this goes to what the whole book power versus force is about and why, and this this is the entire idea of why I think this book is so important. Blink or Power versus Blink? Blink. Okay. Blink. 
What this book is talking about is that our intuition, our subconscious mind, is capable of taking enormous... God damn it, dude. What the fuck? Alright, so I lost my train of thought. So, our subconscious mind and our nervous system, whatever part of our brain it is that's functioning, I don't think a neurologist, unless you were looking at a brain scan of what's happening. I don't even know if you could really tell what part of the brain is activated here. So this is something of an unseen science, mm -hmm. right? Because our subconscious mind takes in all of this information. It takes in everything it sees. And it immediately gives a response. A response of yes or no, basically. Mm -hmm. A discerning response. Mm-hmm. And that's what this entire book is about. It's about our subconscious mind or our subconscious body's ability to make decisions that are the right and correct decision long before our conscious mind is able to come to the same conclusion. Mm. Because it goes on to say that while the museum for months and months could not prove that this statue was a fake or real or real well they had all the paperwork that said it was real uh-huh right all of the paperwork said this is this is authentic this is from this place um it was done by one of these sculptures during this time in the sixth century bc right etc and so all the paperwork pointed to this is an authentic sculpture mm -hmm. but every single expert said I don't know what it is, but that thing is not authentic. It's mm -hmm. not real. And it, it came out finally, by the end of the book, you find out that, yes, the sculpture was a fake. Really? It was faked. It was a oh, masterful fuck. fake. It Dude. was from the same quarry uh -huh. that this particular stone and marble was cut from wow. to create these authentic versions. Interesting. But it was done like 100 years before, or 100 years before it came to them in 1983. So the guy that did the guy get in trouble or he just didn't know? Uh, I think he claimed ignorance. I'm not exactly sure. It doesn't really go into what happened to him, but right. the Getty obviously didn't take it. They didn't end up buying the sculpture. Okay. And all of these experts were proven right. Right. And he goes into in this book there's a number of other tests and studies done testing this theory that our subconscious mind is able to come to correct conclusions about things much faster than our conscious mind is able to. Uh -huh. And the idea is that our conscious mind is subject to all of this deliberation and this, you know, we have to analyze all the information and all the data to prove to ourselves that something is true or false. Right. And the subtitle of this book now i haven't read this book i'm going to read it but the subtitle of this book the power of thinking without thinking yeah so the gist is intuition intuition exactly right so i mean we we were we were going for that walk the other day remember and mm -hmm. uh, what were we talking about we were talking about homeless people or something and it was something along the lines of I don't know what we said exactly, but you were saying I had some intuitive thought 
and then you went on this train of why don't you why don't we more readily believe the intuition mm-hmm yes yes that's what this book I'm a big believer in intuition I'm a massive believer in gut instinct through my conditioning and my programming in this American culture we find ourselves in I have spent now had to spend the last basically probably the last four years deprogramming my own disbelief of my own intuition and and my own gut instinct yeah I believe wholeheartedly in our in the power of our own intuition and I believe that we have gone far astray in neglecting our intuition and that's one of the reasons I think this book is so important is because he actually highlights for all you science buffs out there who who need the hard and fast data to prove to you anything that is unseen or immaterial. He goes into it in this book. Now, Malcolm, I have an issue with Malcolm because I feel as though his voice has been compromised he has been on the payroll or he has been supported by big tobacco and big pharma since his college days as a writer which i think is a big issue in compromising his trustworthiness on his and his belief system and what he writes about unfortunately as brilliant as i think this book is even in this book he comes back to the end of suspended disbelief of whether or not your intuition can actually make up the decision before your conscious mind can Mm. so he sort of he he gives you all of this compelling really compelling information but at the end he's like "Ah, is it real or is it not Mm -hmm. you know which is an issue to me because i feel like when are we just gonna let go of trying to figure it all fucking out right Right. Don't you think that's that's one of our biggest issues in contemporary society is like is we're we're grasping on to life because we're going to figure it out. Yeah. And it's like there's nothing to figure out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's right here. Like this is the answer. This is mm-hmm. it. It's here. Yeah. And hey, your intuition may lead you into a seemingly wrong direction. Yeah. But if you're constantly following your intuition, for instance, one example of how your intuition or your gut instinct can lead you astray goes into the presidency of Warren G. Harding. Mm -hmm. Warren G. Harding is considered one of the worst presidents in American history Mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons. He really put America into a hole. He put oil magnates and, and billionaires all over his his uh what do you call those cabinet yeah his cabinet members mm-hmm. he was uh an asshole he was a gambler a womanizer he had an affair mm-hmm. with a woman named nan Britton in right. the white house who he had a child with and that was another thing for me on an individual on a you know a very individual basis that was very interesting to me and my story 
in our story as our, in our family because yeah. we know so little about the Britons. Right. And one of the reasons I felt this book was calling out to me was that it highlighted this interesting pathway into the Britain family. Yeah. Because Warren G. Harding had this mistress named Nan Britton who he had a child with. And that could or could not be connected to our family. I haven't had enough time to to, Interesting. to track that down. Upon first asking of mom, mom and pop up, our grandparents on my dad's side, yeah, they don't seem to know anything about it, but they don't really seem to know much about <laughs> Any, very, very deep into the it. Britons anyway. Yeah. Well, if it was in the East Coast or in New England, I mean, which I imagine it was, very well could be some distant relation. Um, yeah, uh, you know, that's interesting because if you walk into a room and a robot, I mean, it's funny because my book is a Philip K. Dick book, which is sci-fi, but this is this is something that comes to mind. If you walk into a room and a blow-up doll is sitting on the couch and it's made perfectly to look human. Mm. And maybe this is more of an animalistic trait, but I guess, no, no, this is a go. Keep going. But I suppose you're on the, it's you're exactly on, but I suppose an animalistic animals. I imagine live much closer to the string of intuition than humans do. I don't know Absolutely. how you would test that, but that would be interesting to test. But if you walk into a room, you see this blow-up doll that looks just like a human, you know it's not a human. Mm. Yep. Yeah. I don't know. You know, so uh, maybe I bring that up because there's more glaring examples of the intuition at work and then there and then you have to be able to allow the more subtle examples of intuition to be there as well yeah so you're right you know like with acting acting is an interesting thing mm. i mean you're you're an actor in your own way i'm an actor in my own way we're as marlon brando says we're all actors <laughs> i mean everything you do is acting yeah you absolutely. go to the coffee shop you just stepped in shit. You have to fucking, you hosed it off your shoe. You're feeling all fucking disgruntled. You walk into the coffee shop and you put a, you paint a smile on your face before you order your latte. You just acted. Mm. You just acted 110%. That That's a little bit, that's tangential, but. Not really. What was I saying? Oh yeah, okay, so. Acting and intuition. So if you get on stage, what I've learned is. The most important thing you can do as an actor, and it's very challenging because there's some al alchemical situation you get into when there's an audience watching you and you are playing this role where the most powerful thing you can do is let your intuition guide you. Mm. If you start trying to manipulate your intuition, you're done. It's going to look fake. And the audience You're right. knows. You're right. The audience knows ab right away yep. when you're faking it. Absolutely. Um, I don't even I don't exactly know what that means either, but it's an interesting uh the power of thinking without thinking, the Ooh. subtitle of this book. I wonder why he calls it blink too. 
because in the blink of an eye it happens so quickly well that's the the, well on the acting note that's what makes acting so challenging you have to hone your intuition in at such a such a microscopic millisecond timed out level yeah for it to be true yeah so i think there's subtle examples of the intuition at work and then there's less subtle examples of our intuition at work. And for some reason, like you said, through acculturation, through this uh, belief in the character that I'm supposed to be in the material realm, the, in, the, the, in, the intuition, it's funny also, let's look at this, intuition, intellect. Uh, same root, mm. same roots there. Yeah. And the intellect is, is, is kind of the opposite of intuition. Yeah. Because when you're when you're in your intuition, like you said, you said something about the brain. You're not using your intellect. Yeah, it's pure. Yeah, it's very it's pure. pure. That's... The intellect is is mixed up, if you will, with all of these different possibilities, as opposed to with the intuition. It's one road. It's yes. one beautiful, ever expanding road. I mean, it's even beyond that. It's it's your world. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's your inner world is your intuition. Mm-hmm. you know which is endless it's cosmic yeah, and universal it, it's infinite it's infinite it's eternal um sad guru has a great definition in the talks we've seen and he even taught he writes about it in his book inner engineering about what the intellect is the intellect is like a scalpel it's great for dissecting things yeah opening things up getting a view of it from another angle, analyzing the data, the structure, the et cetera, et cetera's of whatever the thing is. But intellect doesn't really do anything for the truth of a matter. Intellect is not about seeking out the truth. Intellect is about dissecting a thing to examine all of its parts and understand it from a um from a how do i what's the word not intellectual state but from a academic place yeah right your intuition is organic like you said it's pure Mm -hmm. it's pure consciousness here's a test in your intuition right now and you may or may not be able to even do this because our intuition you have to move all your shit away. It's like if you were, if you had a box of sand, you had a box of sand and at the bottom of that box was a crystal that was embedded in the bottom of the box, but you can't see the crystal because there's all, there's a, there's all of this sand around it. Now your mission at this stage in humanity is can you gently brush away that sand to expose that crystal and all its beauty so your intuition is much like that you have to brush away all the various layers all the particles of your thinking that have created this distrust and this disbelief in you that you cannot see things for what they are without first totally examining them so now just take a moment get still put your phone down get very quiet 
Bring your awareness to the sound of the room around you. And pick anything. Pick anything. Pick, let's pick, for sake of the moment, the meeting you have later today. Or the phone call you have to make. And just let it be there. Now, let your intuition tell you how you feel about that. That first immediate sensation you get about what that, how that meeting's going to go, who that person is, whatever that project is that you have to work on, that's the truth of the matter. Wouldn't you say, Gus? That's what, to me, that your intuition is that thing that comes to your mind right before you disbelieve it and you start thinking about it. Yeah. (laughs) Right before you start to analyze it and try to figure it out, that sensation that comes up, that aura around that thing that's in your mind's eye, that is your intuition speaking to you. Yeah, I feel like I was sort of having deja vu with the crystal thing, actually. I feel like I read that yesterday or something. I don't know. It's weird. <laughs> well, it's um, like, it's. let's bring it back to this book. Blink. We can move on after but this. But I want to say something about what you just said. I feel like that, the challenge arises in the same way you said you have to brush the sand away to find the crystal. Hmm you might not be connected to your intellect yet right to know what the intuitive impulse or thought or feeling is so mm. if you're if you're if you've been identified with your intellect for years decades yeah this is the all true thought of the meeting which is you know, and I think what you're saying is the intuit the intuition is always in a direction of peace, positivity, and love. So if somebody is thinking about the meeting and they're thinking, Oh my god, I'm such a fuck up, I'm gonna fuck it up. Right. That's not your intuition. Precisely. What do you think about that? So so then to the me, process has to begin of moving the sand away, which goes back to power versus force, hierarchy number one, stage one, the beginning point of finding the integrity of yourself and the integrity of my of myself is correlates to what my what the truth of my intuition is yes yes well imagine if you lived your whole life based on intuition that's what people used to do that's what humans did for centuries before we were institutionalized and systematized And there was this whole structure of Western civilization built around us and this ladder was created of of which 
we have to climb to attain success. What if your whole life you were just functioning on pure fucking intuition? Pure, unadulterated intuition. Which to me is following your heart. You wake up every morning and you function purely on intuition. I don't have a plan. My, my fucking day goes one moment at a time. What does my intuition tell me to do? Without having a plan. Could you imagine that? Because I'll tell you what, what happens when you start doing that is your intuition takes you to exactly where you need to be to meet exactly who you're supposed to meet. Hmm. For instance, I don't know. There's a million intellectual reasons why I chose to go to the University of Arizona Mm -hmm. coming out of high school. I had football scholarships to way better football programs. No offense, U of A. I love you guys. And I, I actually, one of my intellectual reasons for choosing Arizona was because I wanted to help get the team back to a bowl game. And I believed in Coach Stoops and Coach Wolford and all those guys. But there was something else below all of those intellectual reasons why I chose to go there. I met my future wife, future mother of my child. I went to the desert, which is a very spiritual place. And I had all of these very profound life experiences. Now, if I was functioning fully in my head, I might have chosen UCLA. I might have chosen Cal. I might have chosen USC. But something about it lying under the surface, drove me to pick the University of Arizona. Now, that's just one example from my life. What if you fucking lived your whole life on your intuition? Stop thinking about what you have to do or what somebody else has told you you need to do. And what if you started functioning from this mechanism of your pure, unadulterated intuition? When you wake up in the morning, what... What does your fucking spirit compel you to do that day? I know a lot of us are not fortunate enough to be live in a situation where you can do that. Where you can just fuck off work and go do whatever the fuck you want to do. But why not? It's up to you. You still have you have this thing. It's called free will. You only believe that you're confined to your specific situation. You believe that. At the end of the day, there is no authority lording over you besides the one inside of yourself. But then we come back to your metaphor of the box of sand you're right you know there's a gold bar in there there needs to be time especially if you're in a place like we're in where we're so identified with the material world it's hard to even know what the intuitive choice is you're right you're right dude i i am i am merely 
presenting the crystallized purity of this concept to open others up to the possibility of which exists for all of us if we are willing to do the work of brushing away the sand, of removing the layers of programming that have in- inhibited us directly from our connection to our intuition and our heart. Because at the end of the day, that's what this Western civilization shit is built to do. It's built to deconstruct your humanity so that you can fall into mechanized order to hold up your part of the industrial revolution. Yeah, and you're functioning and you're functioning intellectually. Is there another phone ringing? Yeah, that's the house phone that doesn't work. Who's calling? It's, it's it, I don't know. It's the our intellect. Holy God. shit! I'm not gonna pick it up because I know it's uh. It's, Call it's, God. Well, it's either God or a telemarketer selling uh, newspapers or something. Oh my God, that's so funny. Yeah, so, so while in, God in my rings, ha- in the house that I live in, we still have a house phone that nobody ever uses that just <laughs> rings randomly. It's from another dimension. Is it even plugged in? Yeah, yeah, it is. It just fucking so. But what? Wait, I I I just want to say just to is this too powerful to move on from? No, we can move on. I just want to say one other thing, just to alleviate some of the stress of like, oh God, what's my intuition? You know, it's like yeah. allow yourself time. And Eb has talked about it before, and I think this is where meditation comes in. Yes. When you get quiet, yes. There's a lot of things going on in your head, and it's okay. We don't need to have all these answers right away. We don't mm-hmm. need to have all these answers immediately. Listen, guys, since the Industrial Revolution, we've been on this fucking bus of more and more layers of acculturation and programming and identification with the physicality of it. Yeah. So, man, it's going to, it's, it takes time. It's a tall fucking order to get the world on this wavelength. And hopefully one day it will be. I don't think so. I don't so. even know what that would mean or look like, so maybe not. I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. It, it is a tall order, and yes, it isn't, dude, you know, because okay, well, I believe... Then. That's better. I mean, let's, let's look at it that way. I just believe there is a gravity to this. There's a gravity. You all feel it. We all feel that shit. You're just at, we are all at various levels of understanding and functioning where, to me, I can't go on living a life that is not in alignment with my heart and what my guts and intuition tell me. I can't. It's suicide. It's spiritual suicide. So what does that mean? I I just, there's a gravity to this. And it's a process. It takes a lot of time. Alan Watts, all the great, all the great spiritual teachers, man. Ram Dass. Well, Sadhguru, I watched this clip of Sadhguru. Sadhguru is talking about take 10 10 to 15 years and do a yoga practice. (laughs) Yeah, well. Really, 
No, shit, yeah, dude. But that's not that's not even in the realm of approachability for someone who's caught up in the rat race of trying to make money and do something. No, but I think if you practice your yoga, if you practice yoga for 10 to 50, they say 10 years or 10,000 hours. Yeah. So 10 to 15 years of a yoga practice. And when we say yoga practice, we don't mean getting it and doing a sun salutations although that's certainly part of it well that but would do something for 100 percent. that's that's why i say that's certainly part of it but yoga practice as in self-reflection self-reflection meditation pray some sort of prayer some sort of building a relationship with the spiritual realm with god with your higher power whatever that looks like to you that that's what we that's what I mean by yoga practice, well, and I believe what he means by yoga practice. So don't you, you think know that yeah. boils down is developing a relationship with your inner world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's so, a process. And it is a process. It's not. I you know I'm saying it in the in the context of. This is the crystalline view of what is possible. And in this time of us being so far from far removed from our humanity and the innate energies that drive us and compel us forward. This is what at the end of the day, is going to bring us back to wholeness. So tr- so check it out. Blink, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking by Malcolm Gladwell. I recommend it because it will open your eyes to the possibility of this thing called your intuition. You don't have to be an art expert to be able to tap into this you don't have to you don't have to do anything you're probably in and and in many ways gus i will say this because my my own example of why i went to the university of arizona is a perfect really highlighted this for me in this moment but meanwhile you're making all of these intellectual decisions in your life your intuition is still under there functioning and yeah. moving and mm-hmm. carrying you through certain things. Look at who your friends are. Look at who you spend your time with. Look at the foods you're eating. Although that can get deadly because well, we all know the power of marketing and suggestion. So, Well, that's programming. We, we, we exactly, talked about that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it takes a deprogramming to get to, to this point. All right, so Blink. Check it out. I think it will open your eyes to a whole world of the unseen that you may or may not have already been interested in. So, boom. Gus. Yeah. What book do you have for us? So, you want to do mine? Yeah, let's Something do yours. Okay. Give us Give us what you got. I mean, I have... I have one other book that I think is very important for people to read to expand your understanding of who we are and where we come from, but I'll save that because there's really just one 
excerpt I want to read at the end, and this book is very self-explanatory, so go for it. Okay, so I brought, this is the most recent uh, book I read. I finished it a couple days ago. Um, it's Philip K. Dick, Philip Kindred Dick. It's um, it's called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which is what they based Blade Runner, the movie Blade Runner, off of, which I have not seen. I haven't seen the movie. I've only, I've tried, I've attempted to watch it many times but never really could. I'll, I'll probably watch it now after the book because I'm curious what they took from the book. Um, you know, the backstory, I, I really became... So I don't, I don't exactly know how I became fascinated with Philip K. Dick, but I did, and I bought a lot of his stuff. It probably goes back to Uncle Christian. Yes, that's where it is. Yes. Because <laughs> he would always say, yeah. you got to read Philip K. Dick. Yeah, we have an uh, Uncle Christian Gaiman, who's an author. I'm actually looking at his novel, Beloved Gravely, on the bookshelf right now, who was a, who was a big, uh, I love that. huge reader. Always gave Eb and I books for birthdays. I love him. God bless him. Thinking like, back to him, yeah. spending time with him, he was always a very fluid thinker. Yeah. Yeah. He had a tremendous fluidity to his thought. Right. And how he viewed the world. And I really appreciate that. And I, I believe it it had a tremendous effect on me and how I think about things. But go yeah, ahead. Yeah, huge effect. And I remember being particularly rebellious uh, uh, in terms of the way he thought and functioned. And now I actually, now I appreciate it so much more. Yeah. That's a deeper conversation. But, um, so I guess I saw I was I've been watching some interviews. They call them dickheads. Like if you if you're a <laughs> Philip K. Dick fan, uh, and somebody also in the interview, this Philip K. Dick scholar said, once you read Philip K. Dick, you just kind of feel like feel compelled to read all of his other books, which I felt right away. So the first one I read was Valis, which stands for Vast Active Living Intelligence System. And something, and that's more uh, autobiographical from Dick, but, um, you know, something that I really, and I'm a writer, so I'm always curious how writers write, but something that, something that Dick I, does that I think is so amazing, he kind of, you can tell he implants himself in the story in some regard and then fictionalizes it. And Dick was in a very fraught uh political sphere of life where and and you know he had a bit of a paranoid bent to him where he didn't know if the government was coming after him there was this thing with the fbi where they blew up his office jesus yeah yeah they really yeah in the bay and yeah in berkeley and uh in the bay area the fbi blew up his <laughs> fucking office. that's what he said he came home one day and his whole office was blown blown open jesus. and all his papers were scattered you know and, well, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he would write these stories, and I be this was in the area, or this was in the era of like Nixon, and where it was like, are yeah. you communist or not, or or like the Vietnam and race and all this stuff. Yeah. So Dick realized that sci-fi was a way for him to couch all of his political. Uh, feelings and ideas and philosophies, but without outing himself. 
Which, by yeah. the way, because we've discussed this before, this is the brilliance of the great authors throughout history. They leave these keys in their fictionalized, quote-unquote, I'm doing the quotes, yeah. fictionalized works. They leave keys of humanity within that work. Yeah. So that's that's a very important point because I feel like in this day and age, especially where we're literally tiptoeing into the George Orwellian's 1984 scenario and everyone's like, oh, you're taking it too seriously. It's not that big of a deal. No, it is mm. because those weren't just stories. This is. This is, these are potential conundrums that yeah. we're going to have to deal with and unravel right? because we just think they were fictionalized myths. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's, yeah, that's a powerful point. And, you know, so a little bit of a backstory on this book and then also Blade Runner, and then I'll get into what I found most potent in the uh, content of it. Um you know, Dick wrote this. I don't think it was super popular initially. And then Ridley Scott got a hold of it. And Dick didn't even know they were making it into a movie. He saw in some newspaper he was actually with... Um, who's the guy that wrote Fahrenheit 451? Ray Bradbury. Yeah, so he was with Ray Bradbury one day. And he said to Ray, he said, Hey, man, so I guess they're <laughs> turning androids into a film. And Ray was like, what do you mean? He's like... Dick's like, I don't know. I just found out. And Bradbury was just like enraged. He was like, how the fuck? Yeah. How the fuck do you not know they're writing the fucking? And Dick. That's outrageous yeah, to me. Dick That's is totally outrageous. Yeah. If you've heard Dick interviews and, you know, he's kind of a he's a he feels like a gentle dude. Like he's not super aggressive in, in that way. So he was a hermit philosopher. Yeah, exactly. So. He's like, I don't know. So Dick had nothing to do with writing the screenplay. He said he's written screenplays and he would have loved to have had have known. And originally he got the draft, the first drafts of screen of the screenplays. And Dick said they were horrible and kind of had nothing to do with the book he wrote. But then this is long story short. Then he saw a, a bit of a screening of the early work that Scott did. And he was just like, wow, this is so magical. I love this, whatever Scott did. And of course, Scott is a master. So it's like, you're okay. Meanwhile, Dick, the night of the premiere, I don't know if it was the night of the premiere, but Dick was scheduled to go with Harrison Ford to the premiere and ended up dying like that wow. week or that day. That's so nuts. that didn't pan out. But this book, it's so amazing, and uh, you know, Dick is a master. This yeah. guy is ar this guy is a, arguably a genius. And oh yeah. There's this. Th so, I mean, it's funny to read because it takes place in the future, obviously, and their animals are all extinct. Mm. So animals are androids. Animals are robots. And there's this thing where the humans collect animals to provide them certain feelings. And this is off of a first read. I might have to read it again to get a better picture of how I feel about it. So, but then you can, like, go to these markets and buy these. And, and Dick kind of keeps it vague in a way. He doesn't really say what it all represents. But, like, Rick Deckard, the main character, the detective, like has this electric sheep in his house. 
Mm. And it like provides him something. And then like throughout the story, he's having this kind of this concern about like he buys this new this Nubian goat in the end, like in the <laughs> middle. And it like that like is it's almost like cars. It's like the electric sheep he has is like super run of the mill. It's kind of like a Toyota. Uh-huh. And then he gets this Nubian goat that's like sort of akin to like a BMW in a way. And and then he's like, oh, but I want the llama. How much is the llama? And he can't <laughs> afford the llama. And then. So animals are are a symbol in the book of providing humans with emotional support. Yeah, these android animals. So then. Which they do. Because we have dogs, and dogs are literally, to me, my dogs are my saviors. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so when all is lost, I can go and pet my dog, be with my dog, and it's like the world is okay. It's yeah. not going to fucking, even if it is burning down, it's going to be all right. Yeah, absolutely. So then the way for Deckard, I found this really fascinating, the way for Deckard to tell if somebody's an android, he does this thing that Dick calls the Voight-Kampf test. So he right. goes and meets the androids and sits them down, and it's not about what their answers are, it's what this pendulum thing is feeling based off their answers, and he only asks them questions based on these animal situations. So he says something like, if you walk into a room and you see a rug that's made out of a bear, how do you feel about that? And he sees, like, if the test is, like, going off the scales, he knows it's an android. Because there's no empathy. There's no empathy. So he does all those tests. Like, how how would you feel if you killed a fly? Uh Uh-huh. Right, right. So there's all... That's in the movie. Too. That's in the movie. Is it? So I don't, I have, and then Dick told this story once. I think it's in uh, his other book, The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch. Dick told this story that happened in his life that deeply affected him. He said he was living, <laughs> he was living with his wife. So this is PK Dick telling a story. Yeah, a true story in an uh-huh. interview. He was living with his wife and there was a huge rat in the house uh. and he had to get rid of the rat somehow. And he walked, he cornered it, and it was just him and the rat. And he grabs a pitchfork, and he stabs the rat, Uh, like not wanting to, but he didn't know what else to do. And if you imagine Philip K. Dick in this scenario, it's it's just even more funny. So he stabs the rat, and the rat doesn't die. Uh, It's screaming. uh, And he said the scream reverberated throughout his whole life. And in the book, Three Stigmata, there's a scene where the police go and find... I believe it's in Three Stigmata. The police go and they're chasing this dude down. And when he's cornered, he starts screaming. Mm. And he described the rat screaming as the man screaming in the book. Mm. So there's some element of whatever Dick was doing here of animal... Our cruelty con- yeah. as a measure of who we are as humans. And I think this is a really pertinent topical thing because we live in this culture now where animal cruelty and veganism is totally on our radar. Mm. And like there's plant-based meat now. Mm. 
Um, so it was kind of prophetic in a way. It was like, and also with the extinction of animals and then turning animals into androids was really fascinating. Like, like yeah. trying to hold on to the natural world. Yeah. Like, can you imagine Our connection to nature? Yeah, like, can you imagine all the rhinos go extinct and then in Africa we start injecting fake rhinos into it? Yeah. It's it's fascinating, dude. Um, I mean, there's so many fucking parts to this book. I mean, I could go on. I could go. I could Well, no, there is something else you were telling me about that was fascinating that I think carries over into the film Blade Runner, which is, A, this, there's a very vague sheet cast over whether or not anyone is even a human anymore. Mm. Everyone has an element of roboticism Mm -hmm. or android-esque elements. Even Rick Deckard in the movie, too, it's very vague. You're not even sure by the end of the movie, is he a human or is he one of these androids as well? Right, that's in the book. Yeah. Then there is the there is the philosophical question because tell us because tell us what the the book that's a very underlying theme this this interesting uh concept or um view of humans our empathy and our connection to nature that's fascinating but then also, as Rick Deckard is tasked with tracking down these androids who are deemed criminals, who are escaped slaves from, from a Mars. specific planet, yeah, and they've gotten to Earth. And does it take place in L.A.? San Francisco and Seattle. Okay, so it takes place in the Northwest. In Oregon, yeah. And he's tasked with tracking down these vigilante androids. Yeah, and he, in turn kind of falls in love with one and has sex with one even though i mean he's married but he's in such a state where he doesn't you know he's like he's 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 has this existential concern of what the fuck am i doing i can't do this anymore i can't kill these things anymore and then she kind of the the android he he loves kind of turns the void comp test on him for a, for a moment and he is like oh shit am i an android right and um so in the process of him hunting down these androids he's having this experience of even though these things are robots and dick does such an amazing job of just like just like dancing very sensitively you like he paints the androids like they're humans but there's just this essence of like oh they're he calls them andes oh they're that's an andy you know Mm. and something that stuck with me that i heard dick say that he wanted to accomplish with this book that i feel is so apropos to the political climate now of whether you're a liberal or a conservative is what happens when you think you're doing the good thing, right? but in the process, you become so zealous or so committed to whatever your idea of the quote-unquote good thing is 
you become the bad thing. Right. You become the bad guy. So I feel like we like particularly today we have this thing like politically where like for the ma- the mask is like a great example. You think that you're in the right. Either to, way, on yeah, either yeah, side of the yeah, fence. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. To to such a degree that you'll kill the person that disagrees with you. Yeah. In your righteousness, in your idea of goodness. Now is that good? No, because now you've turned into the tyrant. Right. You've turned into the thing that you were so against. Yeah. That's what I found so the essence of this that I found so powerful. So within Deckard's mission mm-hmm. of stamping out, killing, apprehending these android vigilantes. In what he's been told is the good thing to do. Right. And what he has been instructed and conditioned to believing is the right way, and the quote virtuous. unquote right, true, virtuous path. Mm-hmm. He then becomes the thing that he is trying to wipe out. Mm-hmm. And I think you you put it so perfectly, dude, in this political climate. You know, and that's that's the purpose of this. That's the purpose. No one is right or wrong in anything. There's truth on both sides. And yet we have been conditioned that that person over there is other and that they must be exterminated or turned or exterminated because they are in the process of harming what's all what's right and good yeah where where's our humanity where when when does our humanity come back into play there well it's blending man like you said you know where we're you know we're coming we're be we're becoming enmeshed and entangled with the phones in particular yes and where's the humanity where's the love it's like you said boy there's a lot of love making but not a lot of love (laughs) (laughs) No, I, I think he know, does man. such a Let's... brilliant job too, though, man. I mean, metaphorically, we... philosophically speaking, we are being turned into androids. Read the masters, baby. Read the masters. So do it's androids important. dream of electric sheep? Fantastic to open your mind up to these greater concepts yeah. of, of human truths, empathy, um, being on the quote unquote right side or, you know, living in your righteousness, it, you know, it doesn't, it falls very short of anything sustainable. Um, great pick, dude. Any other notes? What were some other notes? So I've got two notes. I, I, I saw this thing of, uh, in Henry Miller's book, Books I Love. I read a snippet of the of it the other day in your bathroom, actually, mm. where Miller just said this. This one sentence stood out to me. He said, it's not that we read enough. It's that we read too much. Uh, and I, just I thought, remember that, too. I just thought if you even just picked two books, let's say three, let's let, let's say five, because you probably shouldn't only read two books in your life. But let's say you read five books. You know, like really like classics. Yeah. And you just knew them. 
Stendhal, Tale of Two Cities, throw a contemporary one in there. Uh-huh. Like, you, you would be better read or better... Yeah, better read. I keep going. Better read than probably 90% of the population. Better than reading a bunch of shit or just a bunch of stuff that you're not... You know, secondly, I just saw this St. Augustine thing. It's like, there, there's great books. There, there's really, you know, there's... there's. I think it's in his book, Confessions, which I haven't read, but I ju- was just reading about it. It's important to read those great books. Yeah. I mean, th- and and you, you, if you, I mean, if you just Google great books, it'll co- like the classic great books. I mean, I almost went to this school, St. John's, twice: once in Annapolis, once in Santa Fe, New Mexico. The whole curriculum is based off the great books, mm. which I just found fascinating. But, uh, and then also the other thing, Mc- Terrence McKenna. Back to Terrence McKenna, used to say two really important trips. And I would, and this is other than tripping on drugs, either reading or traveling. Mm. Yeah. You know, if you're reading or traveling, you're getting a real experience of something outside of your realm. Yeah. So, and then the magic of reading, the magic of reading. McKenna talked, you know, they used to chain books to tables because they were such, such uh, third eye openers. Uh. And, you know, this is, uh, I think it's really important to read nowadays, man. It's very important. I think it's really, for the attention span. Put down the phone, pick up a book. Seriously, I think it's just. Well, when you read, I've said this before, when you read, you're literally standing on the shoulders of those who have come before you. You know, people wrote all these books for a fucking reason. Because it was important to document the ideas and the sensations, the experiences that people were having. So that we can then go and not repeat the same mistakes. Mm -hmm. You know, there's something about... You can't really tell anyone what to do, obviously. Well, not obviously, but that's that's a very universal principle that we should all incorporate and in, allow to in, integrate into our way of being. You can't tell anyone how to do anything or what to do. It goes in one ear and out the other. Yeah, yeah, I know. How many, how many fucking adults told you shit when you were a kid that... You then went and did that same fucking mistake anyway as an adult because you just didn't believe them. You didn't take them at their word. Reading a book, though, it changes, literally it changes the programming of your mind. So when you read a book, it's like your own intuitive conscious process happening right there in front of you via the words and experiences of someone who has come before you. So, like you said, it's incredibly important to read. Read as much as you can. Read books that you're compelled to read. Read books that call out to you. You know, don't just go read fucking War and Peace because someone says it's, it's you know, a historical masterpiece. 
Yeah, Stendhal is some French classical writer that I've kind of been... And that's great. You don't have to read that. I've stumbled my way through many of the great classics and not really come away with anything worthwhile. Yeah. And that goes to my point of being, read what you're compelled to read. Go back to your intuition. Books call out to you. Books have energy. Right. How you saw Blink. Right. And a a number of other books that have called out to me throughout. Um, And I just want to say reading begets reading, you know, like, yes, if you don't feel like your attention span is great, just stick with it. Like, really. And I've I've learned this kind of recently because I've wanted to start reading a lot more. And, you know, the more I read, the more capable my my mind is 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 available for that so yes yeah so to continue on i don't know what are we going to call this books for a revolution (laughs) books for the revolution of your mind yeah uh i believe that the first two books we've acknowledged here in this podcast are very mind soul expanding books to help you get a better give you a better context and understanding around your experience as a human being. So the last book that I I want to share that I think is incredibly important for anyone to read. Everyone should read this book. You should read this book in middle school or high school. It's so critically important to who we are as human beings, as as creatures on this planet, how we've come to be where we are, what we are, the very nature of our functioning. It's all laid out very beautifully and, and in a very compelling way in this book. And the book is called Tribe on Homecoming and Belonging by Sebastian Junger. Um... The gist of this book, I'm going to read the inside flat because I feel like it's incredibly powerful just in this quick illustration of what's in in this book. Decades before the American Revolution, Benjamin Franklin lamented that English settlers were constantly fleeing over to the Indians, but Indians almost never did the same. Tribal society has been exerting an almost gravitational pull on Westerners for hundreds of years, and the reason lies deep in our evolutionary past as a communal species. The most recent example of that attraction is combat veterans who come home to find themselves missing the incredibly intimate bonds of platoon life. The loss of closeness that comes at the end of deployment may help explain the high rates of post-traumatic stress disorder suffered by military veterans today. Combining history, psychology, and anthropology, Tribe explores what we can learn from the tribal societies about loyalty, belonging, and the eternal human quest for meaning. God, you got me right there. Dude, I'm already there. I'm telling you, is man. Is that true? That's so interesting. Yeah, that... so one of the first stories he talks about is oh, how... God. Early, early Americans, or I should say Europeans, white settlers who came to the Americas, 
they were in this weird turmoil cross-existence with the natives. And as much as they tried to civilize, quote-unquote, civilize the savages, Mm. the fucking settlers themselves were abandoning the settlements, the early American settlements, to go live with the natives because it just made more sense. Never did they civilize or were Indians or natives, excuse me, just running to be a part of this weird new European experiment. Yeah, fuck that. Isn't that fascinating? So he goes into, in this book, it's very much about military veterans and giving a lot of great context and understanding around the experience of our military veterans dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder, Mm. suicide, etc., the roots of all of that. It's very much about our historical beginning, our anthropology, anthropological roots as creatures on this planet. We are, we are built, we are social animals. Yeah. We survived and thrived through the most treacherous of times because we were able to work together mm. better than any other species of animal on the planet that the planet has ever seen we knew how to work together to hunt we knew how to we we figured out that in numbers coordinated attacks we could take down woolly mammoths and feed an entire tribe of 200 people for a month we knew that working together we could take care of one another sustain one another grow food etc He talks about how when when Native Americans were were basically their whole lives were destroyed and disrupted by the settling of Europeans, of Englishmen, and they were driven into the, the reservations and driven to live in isolated homes and in houses that were not that were isolated from each other how that created this phenomenon of the skinwalker the skinwalker is sort of ancient native mythology about a madman who will come into your home and kill the entire family And this did not develop until natives were driven to live on reservations, isolated from one another. Isolation begets madness Mm. and insanity. And this idea of a skinwalker was created through the madness of isolation. Why was it called a skinwalker? Because they were naked? Well, because the the mythology spun around these people driven to insanity was that they would take on the form of of a wolf or an animal that was hungry and bloodthirsty and could only exercise that thirst by slaughtering entire families of people 
That's interesting that that's what they would do, almost like a rejection of the tribe, exactly. of the tribalism. Exactly. Like due to their resentment. It's like a resentment uh, initiated endeavor of becoming a skinwalker. I mean, the freedom too. The freedom out of civilization. Like that, what you read there of the um, settlers ingratiating themselves or wanting to ingratiate themselves into the into the native element just makes perfect sense yeah it just sounds so much more free yeah you're looking at this culture you know you're like oh wow god they're like orgiastic with love and food and dance and play and you know i've got to wear this fucking burlap sack on my chest and you know right pretend that i'm civilized (laughs) well the very specific examples he gives like benjamin franklin wrote about was so settlers both indians the natives would be captured by the settlers and brought in and civilized and put to work etc but then settlers would be captured by the natives and brought into their unit And the people, they would be rescued. European settlers would go and rescue their European counterparts who had been captured by the natives. They'd go and rescue them from the the kidnapping, whatever. And these people would go back to the tribes because it was more comfortable. It made more sense. It talks about how it goes into interviews with people from World War II and, and other great wars that have happened throughout history. Um, issues in Bosnia, I believe, were like, that was like the late 80s, early 90s. Where these people reminisce on the times of incredible war-created hardship, saying that was some of the best times of my life because Mm. my neighbors and I, we were in this thing together. Like we were here together and we had to, we had to, you know, stand up to this adversity and we had to live within it and we had to become, we became so tightly knit. It was like, uh, one of the, the, you know, when London, England was bombed during World War II. And it was insane. The Germans were bombing London and all that. People interviewed were like, that was, we came so, we became so tight. And it was some of the greatest time of my life. Mm. The joy and the, the excitement, the love I felt for my people was unmatched. And I think that's really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I imagine you just uh, you just explained kind of what the solution was. But so, what does Younger say? The solution is like contemporarily. What do we? What do we? Are we observing how isolated we are, or yes. how communal we are, and yeah. and trying to um, create more community? I think it goes to. Becoming aware of this observation of what contemporary society induces in a human, in a human animal, 
And how do we begin to rectify that? Well, we're not going to all start, you know, this might happen. Most likely, we're not all going to walk out into the woods and start living in a tribe, (laughs) you know, but we haven't, not all is lost yet to the point where we can't come back into the family unit. We can't start taking a greater appreciation for human contact and connection and tribal support and living with each other. Well, in terms of, I mean, I just thought of something in terms of the intuitive heart of the earth. uh, It seems like that's kind of happening, whether we like it or not. Right. I mean, the economic disparity, the amount of people I know that live at home, that live with their families now, you know, that otherwise previously in the old, you know, in the old vision of the nuclear family where every child leaves and you have a house i mean that's kind of going away yeah whether we like it or not yeah so you know maybe intuitively it's already happening and that's kind of great yeah i mean it's great we're being sort of forced uh unwittingly or i suppose wittingly however uh conscious you are of it back into the communal unit yeah. And, you know, like you say, man, war, you can't help but work together when it's war. Yeah. Spiritual war, actual, you know, bomb war, or just hard times. I mean, we've just got, we've gotten ourselves into such an us versus them dynamic. Yeah. Where we can be so independent. And the them is so ambiguous it can be literally you step outside and someone's wearing a t-shirt that triggers disagreement in you and all of a sudden that person is the enemy Mm -hmm. that's something he talks about in there as well because our brains are wired in a specific way where we're really only supposed to be in communal contact with about 150 to 250 individuals yeah yeah, that's that monkey thing. That's what our un- uncle Shane is. Those a hundred, I think it's a hundred and twenty painting, or hundred. It might be a hundred and fifty, where that's like as far as the monkey will go. Yes, it's something, and it's a number in there. So then, what happens when you're exposed to a global community of billions of people? A through technology, technology and your devices. But then the other, the 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 primal flip side of that coin is that as a safety mechanism a protective measure built into that same functioning mechanism of our mind is that anyone outside of our tribe is deemed as a threat that's why social media has become so tribalistic Mm. it's the new tribe it's the techno tribe it's i've the been techno saying tribe. that yeah. exactly so anyone outside of the the techno tribe sphere of your agreement mm-hmm. and your alignment is deemed as an enemy and it becomes very vitriolic and non-conducive to any healing or any 
coming to terms or bridging any gaps. And he, he recognizes that in the book as well. To me, this book is, is incredibly important for our understanding of how we function as animals in a very base level, vital part of our functioning mechanism is that we are meant to be in tribes. We are social animals. I think he goes on to say in the book, I believe that we can become this sort of global tribe. And in many ways we are for better or worse. You know, I, I don't know if how that'll shape out, shake out. Um, but Tribe by Sebastian Younger to expand your understanding of a very vital component to our success on this planet as a species. I highly recommend you read it. Gus, great episode. Yeah, that was fun. We went Thank deep. You. We went deep. We went all the way around the, the world, baby. Yep. <laughs> so here, here's That's great. three books. Books for a revolution, mm -hmm. a revolution of your mind, a revolution of your heart. Blink by Malcolm Gladwell might change your perception on what is possible in the realms of your intuition and your gut instinct. Do androids dream of electric sheep? by P.K. Dick to help you gain a better understanding of the philosophical boundaries of your consciousness, of empathy, of to challenge your perceptions of righteousness, what is true and what's right, and what truly matters in the midst of all of that. Because at the end of the day, guys, violence only begets more violence. Evil begets more evil. You can't stamp out the darkness with more darkness. In order to illuminate a pitch black room, you have to come in with a light bulb. You can't come in with more darkness and more shadow. I think it's very important to recognize this as we descend or ascend out of this digital illusion that we've created around ourselves. And then finally, Tribe by Sebastian Younger. It'll great, give you just great insight into the power of connection. The necessity, the vital necessity of human connection and working together. And what it means to have compassion for and understanding for your fellow humans. Gus, you got any closing words? No, I think that's it. I mean, I, I'm just, this has been great. Yeah. I want to I read those two books. Yeah, definitely, man. Well, all right, everybody. I'm exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for hanging with me going on this journey with me i hope this was helpful as always read books 
read. Put your phone down. Pick up the books. Consider the intuition. Do your own research. It's vital to your survival and your existence and our our collective existence, our, our collective survival on this planet as a species. It's vital to you gaining more understanding and more compassion for the world around you and yourself. Lots. Say, say hello to somebody with a smile. Ugh. You have no idea the ripples that that sends through the universe. All right, everybody. Well, hang tough. Until next time, I'm Eben Britton, and this is the Ebb and Flow Podcast. Peace.